Hello and welcome to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw, which follows the pivotal moments that have influenced the way artists think about sound. In this series, we'll be chatting to the musicians, sound artists and experimentalists who have pushed the boundaries in sound, hearing about the standout musical moments that have made them who they are today. I'm Zakia Sewell, and in this episode, I'll be talking to the P-Funk pioneer and leader of the Parliament Funkadelic Collective, the incredible George Clinton. Hi, George. How's it going? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's such an honour to be speaking with you today. So thank you for, for joining us. Oh, thank you. Clinton's career has been long and prolific. He started off his first group, a do-what band called The Parliaments, in his teens before joining Motown as a writer in the 60s, brushing shoulders with some of its biggest stars. We're going to be over that way pretty soon, so we probably I can thank ah, you in person. Ah, that'd be nice. Is that free? Maybe I can come down to one of your gigs. Yeah. <laughs> Put me on the guest list. Yes, yes, do that, do that. Oh. He went on to lead two supergroup ensembles, Parliament and Funkadelic, together known as the P-Funk Collective. They fused psychedelia, surrealism and science fiction into their own unique brand of funk, and change the face of American popular music. So we're going to be talking through your career and it's always nice to start at the very beginning and, you know, your kind of early influences. And when did you first realise that you wanted to be a musician? Oh, wow. When I first realised that I wanted to be a musician, probably when I heard... Frankie Lyman, like in 1957 or somewhere around in there, singing Why Do Fools Fall in Love? And seeing the reaction um, all the little kids was giving, the, the attention they was giving, I wanted to do that, to get a record like that. And um, that was like in, uh, you know, fifth, sixth grade when I started Parliament. Mm. So, so I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do and... It's, it's been consistent in my head all my life. So tell me about your first group. So they were the parliaments, right? This is before before you became parliament proper. Yeah. Tell me about those early days and what, what was the music like and, you know, where were you rehearsing? You know, over there, y'all would call it Northern Soul. A lot of our records from that period is pretty popular you know, in the Northern Soul type of music, parliaments, you know, like I want to testify, and all your goodies are gone, look at what I almost missed, a whole bunch of those songs. We were a doo-wop group, you know, in the first, you know, love songs, crying to the, I'm on my bending knees to the ladies and, you know, that whole, <laughs> that whole trip. And um, that was the beginning. That was It was called doo-wop. The fast songs was, you know, with the... Bow, 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 bow. You know, we was part of that generation. Rock and roll when it first started. You know, that's when we was doo-wopping at that particular time. I love that. That you sort of, you know, it was a pathway to to the ladies to making the ladies swoon. <laughs> oh, oh, that was a, that was a theory back then. You know, you you get down on my knees for you and. And, you know, begging, pleading, all your rap was to the ladies and vice versa. So tell me about when you landed a job at Motown. So you started off as a as a songwriter. Is that right? Well, it started out, um, you know, just singing the doo-wops. But then when Motown came around by 1959, Smokey was the 
the hero, you know, he was writing songs for the Miracles and the Temptations and Marvin Gaye. So right away, he was my hero. I wanted to do that. So And, you know, luckily, I, they opened up a, a publishing company in New York, Joe Bett, uh, Mrs. Gordy, Ray Gordy, uh, came there, and she was looking for a team of New York writers to do the East Coast version of Motown. They hired myself in the group, you know, as a group, you know, we auditioned to be, you know, singers. And we also did the songwriting and, um, and production for them on their demos in the New York area. That, that was the best place you could have been. That was like the, the greatest college in the world. You had the Holland Doja Holland, this, the Barry Gordy himself, Smokey, Norman Whitfield. You had so many great... Pro- the producers were stars. The label was a star. You know, if you was around, anywhere around Motown, you know, people wanted to talk to you. All my life, I've wanted to prove worthy of having came through there. And so even with Parliament Funkadelic, that was our version of Motown. If it had continued on into the 70s with the rock bands that was coming out of Europe mostly, you know, the Led Zeppelins and the Beatles and Rolling Stone, if Motown would have kept going and we would have been that side of the company that would have taken care of that. Can you paint a bit of a picture of, you know, that time when you when you were there, you know, meeting your heroes and were you, you know, how did it feel and what were you kind of nervous about it or, you know, take us back. Okay, well, I'm going to take, we drove from um, Jersey out to Motown to, to audition, you know, about six of us in one, in a Bondiville Pontiac. We drove out there and by... Eight thirty, nine o'clock, when the building opened up, it was like being out at your high school, you know, opening day. Everybody out on the lawn, and and you recognizing these people from, you know, their stars. These that's Little Stevie Wonder, that's Temptation. So they all was there early this morning, and we looking at the, you know, at the cars like little kids, <laughs> looking at you know, oh my God, there's David Ruffin, there, blah, blah, Eddie Kendricks, there. Levi's stuff, you know, they all were there. So, you know, that blew our mind, you know. Um, and from then on, you know, just Detroit was the best place in the world to be. If you were looking for your your heroes, they was just becoming famous themselves. So we caught them right at that time, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, everybody was on the rise. Everybody was still in the, the Vandellas was there, but. They were just getting started. Matter of fact, Martha was the one that auditioned us wow. for Mickey Stevenson. <laughs> you know. Wow. Oh, it just sort of gives me goosebumps. Just I wish I wish I was there. Um, and how did how did that atmosphere, you know, how did that Motown sound influence your sound at that time? Smokey Robinson was my hero. Put it that way. He was my hero, and after that, then you had Barry Gordon, who was. He was Smokey's hero at the, be- at the beginning. Then you had all these up-and-coming ones, the Holland Doja Holland, who was like the super champs at the moment. And it was so many stars in the production and writing of this stuff that by the time you got to the artist, the artist had it halfway made just by being associated there. So it was a lot to learn from them. And ourselves, 
by the time we got our first hit record, it was in Detroit. It wasn't at Motown, but it was one of Motown competition. And it was, I want to testify. So we got a hit record in Detroit, sounding like the rest of the Motown groups. But we recognized that the music was changing, you know, uh, mainly because of, like I said, Beatles, Rolling Stone, Led Zeppelins. They were influencing the music back home. But it was the same music that my mother listened to. It was the same blues that, you know, that I actually learned from from Eric Clapton <laughs> uh, more about my music than, than, I, than I paid attention to when I was growing up because that was like, Old folks' music. Mm-hmm. When I listen to the blues, you know that was my mother and father music. So kids don't like their mother and father <laughs> music. Never did. But once you get old enough to appreciate it, then you realize, whoa! I better get back to my lesson. You know, when you know, I have to wait for somebody all the way over in England to tell me about Robert Johnson. <laughs> you know, I felt pretty bad. You know, so from then on, I start studying. The rock and roll, which I grew up with, you know, Little Rich and all of them was right when I was a kid in school. But then I started paying attention to what I had watched my mother dance to. She was the one that liked to party and go to the club. Then I recognized, okay, blues, rock and roll. Funk is another part of that music that they, you know, they weren't doing. They were doing the blues and the rock and roll part of it. But they weren't doing that, get out of my life, woman. Mm. You don't love me no more. You know, they they weren't doing that. So that left that open for us to do. That's interesting, isn't it? That it sort of it had to come almost like via the UK through a kind of another interpretation of it and back to you again. And it, it seemed like that's the way music do, period, like that. So when we start making our records after Testify, we did an album called Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow, knowing that it would probably take 10 to 15 years before it started coming back over here influencing us. Mm. So we we tried to set that stage by going as far out as we possibly could. When you do something that far out and that far strange, it takes a long time for you know for it to get back to you. But right now, when I talk to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they're into free your mind, your ass will follow. <laughs> That's the record that they're into. And, and by way, again, different groups from Europe, mostly the Northern Soul, people have kept that stuff alive all these years. Now it's beginning to come back over here by way of punk bands and mm. you know metal bands. I lived long enough to see it go round and round a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, and it kind of it brings in this idea of the future, and which we'll come to later. But I wanted to ask. I you, like that the future will come to you later. Yeah, <laughs> the future will come to you later. The future will come to you later. That sounds like one of your song titles. Maybe that, that maybe is, next it, album. You know it will. <laughs> so I wanted to skip forward a little bit, and and I wanted you to tell me about when you met Bootsy Collins, because this must have been a fateful meeting. I mean. When did you meet him? How did you meet him? And what did that feel like? Okay, well, Bootsy, like 1971, right around in there, Amalia Franklin, who had grew up around the band. We knew her, you know, she's about 12 years old. We stayed with her parents. She was singing with us on different songs. And um, 
she said, I want you to meet somebody who's a Funkadelic that you should meet. And I said, okay, cool. So when we played Cincinnati, she bought the whole house guest they were calling themselves then. They had just left James Brown. And I saw them, they looked just, you know, like the way we dress. So they already looked like Funkadelic in Parliament then. <laughs> so that's what she meant. We got together, we jammed, and he played with us a minute. But I realized immediately that he was a Bootsy. It, it was, he was his own thing. We realized immediately that he had to do his own thing. So we, got, we made it up our mind. I would help them become whatever name he was going to call it. And we settled for Bootsy and his rubber band. We, I would help them do that. He would help me do another style of music for Parliament since we was ready to change styles and everything. Sly Stone had hit the scene. James Brown was all over the place with horns. So horns was becoming part of what we had to add to the band. You already had the psychedelic, but now we had to add horns to it. Bootsy brought along Fred Wesley and Maceo Parker. So it was definitely influential, you know, by way of the James Brown sound with Parliament, with Motown, with Jimi Hendrix. We knew we had all the black bases covered, so we call it P-Funk. We had pure funk. This was from every angle you want to look at. You want to look at the Motown thing, we would do that, but we do that on Bootsy. We'd do I'd Rather Be With You, which was a love song type song that we would have done had we been still at Motown or someplace. Parliament was the little older one, you know, almost jazzy. Mm. We could adventure on out into different sounds with the band, still with the Motown knowledge in our head and the knowledge of having watched the Beatles and um, Jimi Hendrix, paying attention to all of that style, I was able to mix all kinds of styles, and we didn't have to stay in a bag. Mm. We didn't have to stay to make sure we got a hit, a hit single. That was the, the worst part of all of that, trying to get a hit single. Back then, you could get a hit album and never have a single. Jimi Hendrix, people don't realize, he had three or four hit albums. And big as he is, <laughs> that was the extent. Mm. It was about being underground back then, they called it. So it gave you, it gave you being underground almost, or gave you some freedom to really experiment. Oh, I mean, and we did it to, I mean, we did it intentionally. Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow was well planned. I mean, we did it tripping on acid, <laughs> thinking it was a joke, but it made so much sense once I really, start recalling it after we weren't high anymore. <laughs> that was the best thing we could have done. We we made room that we didn't have to be in that Parliament 45 single bag anymore. Mm. We didn't have to do none of that. And by the time we got a, a hit single on Funkadelic, it was One Nation Under a Groove. You know, we by then, we knew how to dance to all of it by then because by then we had a spaceship. Well, I want I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about the kind of mythology around P Funk. You know, you describe it's like it's the artwork, it's the costumes, it's the you know the mothership, the literal <laughs> spaceship. You know, was were you conscious of trying to create your own world with all of that? That was what we were doing intentionally. You know, 
to to me, Motown was a play. With all those different acts, that could have been on Broadway right while they were doing it. We knew it because when Hair came out, most of the people in there, we knew them personally, and they dressed like us. We were the style for is that hippies and black people, it was us in Sly Stone. So we we knew that I wanted to have a funk opera. Even I couldn't, I tried it in America East, it's young. I tried all the different titles that would lend itself to that, but I never did the songs where they all related to the same concept. Mothership got real close to that. The Thumpasaurus people and, you know, the um, all the different stuff that we had in there. We was making a play. We was making P-Funk as an opera, a funk opera with a spaceship. The whole mythology of funk coming from the planet Sirius, the dog star, all our stuff, it all relates to the same dogs, spaceships, <laughs> and funky music. Partying, you know, even the Bootsy Rubber Band was part of it. The Horny Horns, when their records came out, that that was still part of the myth, the Brides of Funkenstein. Mm. Gary Scheider, who was Diaper Man, was, you know, from Atomic Dog on Star Child. So we had the characters, still have the characters mapped out. Matter of fact, I'm doing artwork now, and so... A lot of that's part of the mythology. Because mm. when I when I watch videos of you performing on stage, you know, I'm reminded of like Sun Ra and the orchestra. Yeah. And you know, and there have been lots of people who have followed, like Drexia, who kind of like, you know, tied into this idea of an alternate black mythology. And you know, it, 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 people call it Afrofuturism. So, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as part of that lineage? Oh yes, we. I mean, we was intentionally doing that part of it. You know, all the way back to Maggot Brain, and f- when we first started to whoa hi hey mama what's a funkadelic, we were identifying with what is a funkadelic, what was the story behind them, where did they come from, how did they get here, and it was always spacey, psychologically spacey or literally <laughs> off the planet. You know, we were dealing with that type of mythology and storytelling mm. from a black point of view, super black. Mm. I mean, we did the, the the chants from the slavery to the to the church. You know, we came in from another planet. We came in from the dog star. And now you look at Sirius, you know, there's a there's a planet out there called Sirius A and B. Mm. We didn't we didn't know that to the Dogun. A planet Sirius, of course. Of yeah. course. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean the the Doguns, the African tribe, that's where they from. That's where they say they were from. Mm. So we didn't know that's what it was, but that's what we were identifying with, you know, and when we put it together and years later, we realized, okay, this is what the dreams mm. was about. This is what we was telling the stories about. And and do you see that, you know, that as like a political act, you know, because there's a whole idea that in sci-fi and science fiction, like there are never black people in science fiction. Right. It's political now because once we start knowing about it, then we realize, oh, there was a reason we don't know about it. There's you, You're not part of history. You're being written out of history. It was to be gotten away with. But it can't get away with because we got a spaceship. We've been there for ourselves. <laughs> 
Oh, amazing. Now, I want to hear, I've heard a rumour that you have actually seen a UFO. Is that true? Well, I didn't see the UFO itself, but we saw the light from the sky, Boots and myself. We saw a, a laser-type sustained light, you know, in daylight, first of all. And less than three to five minutes later, we see it again come down through the trees on this highway. We had gotten off of 401 in Toronto. As we going down through this country road, the light come back again right down through the trees, like a couple of blocks in front of us. And then the same block we were in, we saw it hit again on the other side of the street. Third time, it hit the car. And it was like, you know, mercury in a thermometer. It beaded up like mercury oil and water and rolled off the side of the car. Three or four big bubbles of it hit the car and rolled off. And when it hit the car, street lights was going out. Street lights were on and was getting dimmer as we went a couple of blocks until finally all the street lights in front of us was out and it was pitch black. Car lights was going out. We drove like about four blocks before we actually see a lit up about three or four blocks in front of us. We mm -hmm. start seeing light. I realized that we had just gotten it from the studio from Detroit. It was in the morning. Mm. It was like 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. So why were we dealing with street lights going out and my daughter's talking about she's getting ready to go to bed? Some kind of time was missing. And when I brought up the boots, he, he didn't want to hear about it because we didn't even talk about it once it happened. We sat there in the car for like 10 minutes. My daughter came out of the house and said, y'all look like y'all seen a ghost. Mm. We weren't high because we had just come through custom, mm. you know, from um, Detroit into Canada. So you couldn't come through the border with nothing on you. So that ruled out the fact that we might have been high or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, we weren't high. So it was the aliens come down to say, yeah, we like, we like, we like P-Funk. We like P-Funk. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but, you know, it seemed like they pretty much stayed around us for you know, after that, because um, the mothership came out about a week later. Oh, wow. It was all around the time of the mothership. Oh, yeah. So just, wow. just prior to that, just you know, like a couple of weeks prior. And after that, you know, everything we did was about the shuttles, the space shuttles. Because of the promotion from the record company, we were able to get into NASA. We were able to get into NORAD. Anything that had something to do with spaceships or or Kiss or Donna Summers, we were in it. Have you made it to space yet, or do no. you hope to? Oh, I come from space. <laughs> <laughs> you I told, need to go I'm, back I'm, there. I'm going to meet Elon Musk when he get there. I'll be there when he get there. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Do you think that there is life elsewhere? I know you say you come from space. Oh, of course. Of course. You know, I've been binging on... Um, Pro robots and nanotechnologies and all. I'm just all of that. We are so far ahead of what they've told people that we are at. They're already building up communities out there already. Mm. They're already using asteroids to as parking lots and as gas stations. They've already got this stuff being done. They got material going up the 
to, to, to make habitats on Mars already. They'd be leaving in five years to go there. Mm. I mean, kids five and six years old now, by the time they get in their teens, that's going to be the new problem they're going to have. It's going to be not whether you're black or white. Or, it's going to be how many eyes you got, how many nose, <laughs> how many nose. Do they want to eat us? Do they want to make love to us? You know, I yes, I believe that is it's any minute they're gonna tell us that certain people have got part alien in them. <laughs> we here, they've been here for a long time. I believe all of that. Oh, I like the idea that you know some people talk about the idea that that these forces, you know, almost they come and they inspire us, you know. So the music that you've made has almost been inspired by these yeah. other forces. And it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, you were making this music knowing that it was for the future. Yes. You knew that time would have to catch up, that people weren't necessarily going to be ready for it. I mean, when we did uh, Mothership and the Moog synthesizers start coming out, I mean, it was like King Crimson again. It was the European groups doing not jazz but classical music in rock and roll. When I realized you can get away with that, and we had the, one of the best classical players in the world when it came to Bernie Worrell. That was, we were able to use all that he, his mother whipped his ass to make sure that he went to school for it. All that he learned, we were able to put that to use on a commercial level. Knowing that it'll, like Sun Ra was way out, knowing that it's going to be in the future, people will say, wow, they were doing that back when rock and roll was basically just simplistic chants and grooves and beat. Mm. They were playing serious, you know, futuristic stuff. And Bernie, once he gets to theory, he can go on out there even further that we didn't even know what he was doing to now when we go back and explore flashlight and you know the different songs that he was just tripping out on in his classical things mm. we realize now that those was some serious chords and things that he were able to use in this theatrical setting of funk which is def the total opposite of it you know <laughs> funk is pretty basic you know basically really simple but you can get so good that it becomes simple once you can Go into outer space and trip out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we was tripping our ass off. <laughs> um, so let's like bring it forward to the, the present day and just thinking about the sort of influence that you've had and the, and the legacy, because obviously, you know, your music has been sort of reimagined as in, in hip-hop samples and, you know, you've had collaborations more recently with the new generation like Kendrick Lamar and Childish, Childish Gambino, Flying Lotus, people like that. So how does it make you feel, you know, to know that your music is still living and giving and, and feeding people, you know, up until this day? Seeing how it affected all the different generations after us of course I'm proud of it. Usually usually when it comes to being proud of something, you know, I usually would tell myself that in the bathroom. You know, oh, you're bad, so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so, and flush the toilet and leave it in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, I know not to bring that out with me because to somebody, you ain't did shit. <laughs> you know, it's all, so I've always been careful about you know, pat myself on the shoulder. But I'm 81 years old this year. Wow. I, I can go on and do that now. <laughs> I think so. I know it's 
the shit as we call it. It was it. And the clones, which is what we were talking about, musically, a clone is a sample. A little piece of sample, cut it, and you can get a whole bunch of more baby funks out of it. (laughs) You know, and that's what you get with hip-hop. Funk is the DNA in hip-hop. If you got a booty, you will shake it. (laughs) Absolutely. And do do you think that, you know, funk still has the power that it did? Can it still change the world? Funk always will have that power. It just it might change its name or how you relate to it, but you can tell if somebody's shaking their booty, there's some funk somewhere around there. <laughs> you know, I don't care if you're in church. There's lots of funky songs in church. You know, oh, no, funk will all, because funk is that attitude that allows you to be free enough to go experience something new. You know, A lot of people call it swag. That's your new funk. That's all it is. You may learn a new dance in order to dance to it, but it's still that same, you know, groove. Uh, amazing. That's It's inspiring. I, I hope the funk lives on. But it will, as you say, maybe take, take oh, different will. names, different styles, but it's the spirit of funk will never die. Will never die. <laughs> you used to ask me, where's funk going? I say funk is never going anywhere. Funk is always coming. So what does the future hold for for you, George, and what have you got coming up? So from here on, we're coming out with new 3GP, which is third-generation P-Funk, on the music side. Also, georgeclinton.org is georgeclintonart.org. That's what I've been doing, like I say, during the pandemic. I did over 400 paintings. So I'm doing a lot of... um, exhibitions on P-Funk paintings, um, mm. lots of art and lots of um, movies. They got movies they're planning on right now coming out. Mm. This is that era. I'm going to say era. I'm not going to say that year. This is going to be that era that P-Funk is going to go to where a lot of people wanted to see it go a long time ago. You know, to me, I'm always looking for some reason to start it over. I don't never like to catch happy. I like to be right behind happy. I don't never want to catch it because there's nothing left to do. <laughs> but we're going to catch up with it this time. <laughs> mm. Amazing. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful. And just, yeah, you've had me smiling from ear to ear the whole time. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> One Thanks nation. A lot. One, One nation. nation. <laughs> All right. I'm Zakia Sewell, and you've been listening to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw. This episode was recorded remotely with the SM7B microphone. 